Good morning, everyone. Um, today's first reading is Genesis 37. It's rather lengthy, so bear with me. Thanks, Campbell, by the way. <clears throat> Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? Oh, they've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of those cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Just throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, 
We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Second reading is Revelation 1, verses 12 to 20. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Write down what you've seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Thank you, Laura. Um, thank you for reading it uh, so well. Uh, it was a long one. Uh, I will try and not be quite so long. Um, and it does it does feel appropriate uh, to be talking or exploring a passage of senseless violence um, on Remembrance Day and after uh, what happened in Burke Street this week. Um, but I think this passage, like many in the Old Testament, is a little problematic for us because we run into the problem of the Sunday school story. If you grow up in church, you will no doubt have memories of hearing the Joseph story. And if your Sunday school is anything like mine, the Joseph story was naturally all about Joseph because unlike other characters in the Bible, Joseph seems to be a fairly uncomplicated character, a righteous guy who is hard done by and who eventually prevails. Well, it was stories told like this that made me hate Sunday school. Hopefully, Sunday schools have changed um, and improved. But the stories were so familiar, the lessons so obvious. Be like Joseph, don't be like his brothers. That Sunday school became deadly dull. The stories were presented as disconnected tales turned into moralistic fables. And that's a really terrible way of reading biblical narrative. There's more to the story. But we often approach scripture like this. When Pete told me the passage, I read it and thought, hmm, not much here. Joseph's a jerk. His father's naive and his brother's response, well, that was a huge overreaction to an entitled brat. We, don't, we often don't know what to do with narratives like this. 
we want to jump right to the end, to chapter 50, where Joseph says, when his brothers sold him into slavery, they intended to harm him, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Then we can make this story all about redemption in Christ, God's attributes, his sovereignty, and his grace. But there's more to the story than this. And if that's all it is, the danger is it can end up just being head knowledge, stuff we know about God, but doesn't really affect us or how we live. But scripture is about encountering God, experiencing his love, and being transformed by it. There's more to the story. The passage begins, this is the account of Jacob's family line. So it's not the Joseph story. It's the story of the whole family of Jacob, the family of Israel. This is the last time in Genesis we encounter a heading. This is the account of. And this lets us know that Genesis 37 to 50 is one long story that concludes the book and sets the scene for Exodus. If Genesis were the first movement of a symphony, then Genesis 37 to 50 is the movement's final recapitulation, where it restates its main themes. So today, we're going to explore three of those themes. I'm going to assume you're fairly familiar with the story, and we're not going to go through it verse by verse. So instead, we're going to look at how these themes connect the passage to the stories we've already seen in Genesis, and how it links, and how this story links to the greater narrative of scripture that reveals Christ. Firstly, we're going to look at the theme of waiting for God to fulfill his promises. Then, how God transforms his people through trials. And finally, the exaltation of God's son. So, awaiting God's promises, transformation by trials, the exalted son. I often take the bus. And the most frustrating part of taking the bus is when they're late. Because when the bus is late, you don't know how long you'll be waiting. It could be two minutes, it could be 20 minutes. You know the bus will come, you just don't know when. And the really exasperating part is when a bus on a different route arrives on time while you're waiting for yours. Why is it that that bus can come on time when mine isn't? Waiting, specifically waiting for God to fulfill his promises, is where we find God's people in Genesis 37. God, as we know, had promised Abraham land, descendants, and blessing. Now, three and four generations on, the promises are really still awaiting fulfillment. Sure, we can see the promise of descendants, of a nation starting to unfold. In Jacob's 12 sons, we have the beginnings of the 12 tribes of Israel. But the first promise, land, not much has happened there. While Jacob and his sons live in Canaan, they're still foreigners and nomads, owning only a few plots of land. And blessing? God certainly blessed the family with wealth, but their relationships are dysfunctional. 
And as for being a blessing to the nations, well, they're hardly good neighbours. Three chapters earlier, and we skipped over this, but three chapters earlier came an episode that ended with some of Jacob's sons killing all the men of a neighbouring town, taking their women and children captive and seizing everything in their houses. As Jacob rather dryly rebukes his sons, you have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites. God's promises are at best only partially fulfilled. So how, how does this family wait for God's promises to be fulfilled? Not well. Their dysfunction is in full display in the story we heard read today, with Jacob favouring Joseph over his other sons. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a, good, a kind word to him. This favoritism wasn't just because Joseph was born when Jacob was old, but also because Jacob, also because Joseph's wife, Joseph's mother was Jacob's favorite wife. Of Jacob's two wives and two concubines, hmm, there's something wrong there. Of Jacob's two wives and two concubines, he really only loved Rachel. And that, of course, is a recipe for envy. And envy's a bit of a tradition in this family. Joseph's brothers envied Joseph's position as a favoured son. This echoes their mother Leah's envy of her sister Rachel's position as Jacob's favourite wife, and Rachel's envy of Leah's children. It echoes their father Jacob's envy of Esau's status as eldest son. And ultimately, it echoes Cain's envy of Abel and Adam and Eve's envy of God. Envy is really the manifestation of doubt. Envy is the doubt that comes to us when we see others blessed in ways we're not. It's the doubt that God loves someone else more than he loves us, that God plays favourites. We can kind of understand now why envy reigned in this family. God had promised to bless Abraham and his descendants. The question of which of his descendants would inherit this blessing tore the family apart. This uncertainty around how God fulfills his promises led members of the family to try and seize God's blessing, to take God's promises for themselves. We heard how Jacob seized his brother's birthright and blessing by deceiving first Esau and then his father Isaac. Before that, Sarah and Abram attempted to manufacture the fulfilment of God's promise to them of a son by taking their slave Hagar and using her to produce one. And the pattern goes right back to the start, to Adam and Eve taking and eating the forbidden fruit and Cain seizing and killing his brother Abel. So when Joseph told his brothers his dreams that suggested God would place him above them, 
this pattern of taking and seizing continued. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they took him and threw him into a cistern. Envious of Joseph's position as favoured son and fearful of what his dreams foretold, his brothers attempt to forestall God by seizing Joseph and finishing him off. So we've seen that instead of waiting for God to fulfill his promises, time and again, this family attempt to force God's hand. So what about us as we await Jesus' return and the new creation? What do we do with the envy that comes when, other receives, when others receive the blessings we seek but don't receive? As many of you know, I've been unwell with ME-CFS since I was a teenager. This illness has prevented me from having normal things that I expected God would give me. Things I once, I guess, felt I was entitled to. A career, a wife, children, days without exhaustion. And while I don't often feel envious of others, every day I behave in ways driven by envy. I fail to love others who are suffering because I'm focused on my own frustrations. I rationalize temptations as satisfying unfulfilled needs or seek unhealthy substitutes for the things that I don't have. And I can waste time and energy fantasizing about a time when my limitations are removed. And so I miss what God is giving me now. I don't know what God is making you wait for. You probably don't need me to point out your deepest desires or greatest frustrations. But I do know that God is good and his grace is sufficient for me and for you, for his power is made perfect in weakness. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Notice what Paul was saying here. Not just that God's strength is displayed in our weakness, but that God makes us strong in our weakness. What does this mean? Here are two ways that God makes our weakness strength. First, here in community, in, in church, my lack is filled by your abundance, and your abundance fills my lack in different ways. My limitations provide opportunities for you to, for me to rely on you and for you to care for me. People ask me sometimes if I find it hard being an MC that's entirely couples with kids. It isn't, I love it. Because in, in that MC, God has given me family. My weakness becomes our strength together. Second, in not giving us all we feel we should have, God teaches us to find contentment in him. God has limited my ability to support myself, forcing me to stop forming my identity on my abilities and establish it in belonging to Christ. When we focus on Jesus, on what he's done and what he's doing, 
we find rest from frustration and relief from temptation. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us when we realise that our hardships do not separate us from God's love, but are opportunities to draw closer to him. There's another way that God turns our weakness to strength. This is the second theme I want to uh, draw out of the passage, that of transformation by trials. As I said before, in, in this story, Joseph is a jerk. He dobs in his brothers. He big notes himself with his dreams. He even gets lost when he's been sent to do a job. We'll look at the content of his dreams a bit later. But yeah, just for now, it's enough to observe that combined with being his father's favorite and that coat, Joseph's behavior makes him so odious to his brothers, they want him dead. At best, we could say that Joseph is spectacularly unself-aware. But given his brother's extreme animus towards him, I think he was something of the narcissist. Yet by the time we meet him next, his character is changed. For the rest of Genesis, Joseph is a man of integrity and wisdom, a hard worker who acknowledges God and is quick to forgive. None of these qualities are discernible in Joseph of Genesis 37. You might be thinking I'm making too much from limited data, but there's more to the story. Joseph is not the only one who undergoes a transformation. His brothers do as well. Later in the story, Joseph will set elaborate tests, or traps really, for his brother, brothers, and they pass those tests. They've changed. Where they were once envious and plotted to kill him, despite the distress it would cause their father, they now love their father and, and their brothers, that they go to great lengths to prevent their father from losing any more sons. One of them takes personal responsibility for ensuring Jacob's youngest remains alive. Another even stakes his own son's lives on his brothers. And it's not just the brothers. There's a pattern of character transformation running right through Genesis. Take their father, Jacob, for example. Last week we heard how, on the run from Esau, after he stole his blessing, Jacob had a vision of God who promised to bless him. And God did indeed bless him, giving him a large family and great wealth. But years later, God told Jacob to return to Canaan. And Jacob feared that Esau might still want his revenge. But he went back, he obeyed God. He goes to Esau, he acknowledges Esau's seniority and gives him half of all his wealth. In effect, splitting between them the blessing he had stolen from him. To be fair, Jacob still isn't completely honest in this story, but he's come a long way. And Esau too, although we don't know how, has been transformed. This is how he greeted the brother he once planned to kill. But Esau ran to him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. 
So we've seen how this family attempts to seize God's blessing, how that expresses their lack of trust in God. But we also see that God doesn't let them remain in their distrust and their envy. God tests them to transform them, to be people who do trust him and who, in trusting him, live righteously with others. I think we, we often miss this. As good Protestants, we read these stories as teaching us about God's grace, about his commitment to saving an unfaithful people. As the title of this series puts it, Broken Family, Unbroken Promise. But part of this unbroken promise is healing that family. That's part of how God blesses us. So how does God transform character? In his book, Honest Evangelism, Rico Tice writes about why he didn't share the gospel with his grandmother when she was dying. Why didn't I tell her about Christ, he writes. I've come to see that I was afraid, afraid of what she'd say, afraid of what my family would say, because I knew they'd think it was inappropriate. I wanted my family to think well of me, more than I wanted, of, wanted her to think of Christ as her saviour. My family's respect and having an easy time in life had become idols to me. Tice explains, there has to be something in our hearts that we make the most important thing in life and to which we sacrifice other things to have or to keep it. If that something isn't God, it's an idol. So for Abram and Sarah, the idol was getting an heir and they sacrificed Hagar to that idol. So God tested them by demanding they sacrifice their heir. For Jacob, it was the family, what was the promises? It was the family birthright and blessing. And for those, he sacrificed his relationships with his brother, with his father. He sacrificed his whole life, really, because he had to leave Canaan and find, uh, find refuge somewhere else. So God taught him to work instead of stealing and tested him by sending him back to face Esau. For Joseph's brothers, well, it was Joseph, it was their hatred of him, and they sacrificed him and their father's happiness to get rid of him. But as we saw, God tested them, and this time they tried to protect their brothers and their father's happiness. And for Joseph, well, I think his idols were his status as, a fa as the favoured son and this promise of authority. God tested him by removing his special status, taking away all, all status, making him a slave in a foreign land, someone with absolutely no authority. So through these trials, God removed their idols from their hearts and turned them into people who were able to give up those desires that stopped them from trusting him. And so it is with us. 
We who put our trust in Jesus are predestined to conform to the image of God's Son. In other words, God has promised to transform our characters to be like Christ's as we give up our idols. And God will keep testing us until we do give them up. If you aren't a follower of Jesus, well, this is the life that he calls his followers to. A life of God's love, yes, but a life of trials that teach you to give up your idols, that stop you from loving God. Again, I, I probably don't, well, you probably don't need me to tell you uh, what, what things your idols are, what things you've made into the most important things in life. If you're having trouble working them out, Rico Tice has some questions for you. What do you make sacrifices for? What do you daydream about having? What do you have nightmares about losing? Once we've identified these idols, how do we get to the point of giving them up? And it is hard. So we must remember that first and foremost, this is God's work in us not us working alone to change ourselves. We can persevere being confident of this, that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ. Second, like those we've heard about today, that great cloud of witnesses, as the writer of the Hebrews puts it, we need to trust that God is good, that he will fulfill his promises to us, that he does give us all we need, and that the things he doesn't give us, well, we don't actually need them. Then we run. We run with perseverance the race marked out for us. By trusting God in obedience, even when, especially when, the course marked out for us takes us away from where we want to be. And so we throw off all that hinders. Sins, yes, but also every blessing that we've turned into idols. Trusting that those blessings are actually found in Christ. So looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's where we're going to conclude today, looking at the exalted son. Turn with me to Joseph's second dream. I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. The meaning was pretty clear to those who heard it. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down before you? So, one son, Joseph, would be set over the whole family. But I don't think this is just a prophecy of Joseph's rise in Egypt. There's more to the story here too. Because we have cosmic imagery, sun, moon, stars, bowing down to a man. 
where else do we come across these sort of images combined with the idea of ruling? Well, in Genesis 1, God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over all the earth. So in Joseph's dream, he sees a human set above the rulers of the heavens. Now Joseph's dream, I think, is a prophecy about Joseph's rise, but it's not just that. It doesn't just point to one of Israel's sons who, after being rejected by his brothers, would be exalted over all his family. It also points to another son of Israel who, after he was rejected by Israel, would be exalted over all creation. Centuries after Joseph, another man saw another vision of a human ruling in the heavens. The Apostle John, in his revelation, saw the risen and ruling Christ. And the stars weren't merely bowing down to Jesus, but he held them in his hand. Such is the authority that has been given to him over the spiritual powers, over the rulers of the heavens. Last week we heard how Jacob's dream of a ladder between heaven and earth points to Christ. We heard that Jesus is the mediator between heaven and earth. He's where heaven and earth come together, in the incarnation, in his life, and above all, because of his death and resurrection, Jesus is the place where God and humanity are united. But there's more to the story. After his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Jesus is the son of man, that perfect human who suffered for humanity, who was presented before the father and was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So in Jesus, God and humanity rule in heaven with the Father, just as Joseph ruled Egypt. More than that, those who believe in Jesus are united with him and rule with him. We have, as Paul says to the Ephesians, every spiritual blessing in Christ, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring to unity all things in heaven and on earth under Christ." So let's keep our eyes fixed on this vision of Jesus and meditate on him and on these blessings we have in him. Let this vision sustain and encourage us as we are put to the test and we wait for God to fulfil his promises. <laughs>